So let's turn to John's Gospel. And our reading this morning is chapter 3, verses 22 to 36, page 888 in the Visitor's Bibles. Following on from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus and then John's comments on that, in the very early days of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, John continues in verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John, that is John the Witness, John the Baptist, also was baptizing at Anan near Salim, because water there was plentiful and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a man cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears his voice rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he's seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he, that is God the Father, gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. How to be less and still have more. There is something deeply, deeply attractive in that, isn't there? Something we see in this passage today that I think chimes with every true Christian. We want it badly, real, deep, content humility. It's something we know instinctively, all of us must go right to the heart of what it is to be a Christian, to have thrown our eternity in with Jesus. And yet that sort of content humility is something so many of us just don't seem to find. Well, this morning we meet the man whose last recorded words, his last words in this gospel, are some of the most beautiful words ever spoken by a Christian. One writer calls them, Surely one of the greatest utterances that 
ever fell from human lips. That must be right. My joy is now filled full. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. And with that, John fades from the story. And what is so truly remarkable about those final words is that they come just as he's faced with what, if I'm very honest with you, is every pastor's greatest fear. All the excitement about what he has to say is dying. People are being drawn away to the next big thing. The giving is dropping. The buzz is fading. Once he was the most celebrated preacher in the Mediterranean world, now the crowds are slipping away to someone else. And one by one, John the Baptist is losing his sheep. Every fallen, needy human pastor's greatest fear. And amazingly, he could not be happier about it. His great joy is to be always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Or to put it the Bible's way around, to be always the usher, never the groom. And so we need to ask, what's the secret? Where do we find that sort of deep, real contentment that he had, which lets him truly rejoice in him being less and Jesus being everything? Well, the answer that John the writer has for us is that there's only one secret to that kind of humble contentment. There's only one way to really rejoice in someone else's happiness, in someone else getting the love and the praise and all the spotlight. And that secret is to truly love that other person. Turn up at a wedding out of duty, full of thoughts about why it's never my turn. And you can only ever feel bitterness and resentment, can't you? Turn up at a wedding as the best man to a friend you deeply love. And you will only ever be full of happiness to see him get the girl. And so the secret to real Christian contentment is to see more in Jesus Christ. It's John the witness who we find so remarkable here. But this is a passage where John the writer has filled it full of deep, rich, wonderful Christology. Truths about Jesus, who Jesus is in salvation history and who Jesus is in eternity. Because he wants us to learn to love the bridegroom. Often it's the head truths that actually change our hearts. And there is no bigger head truth than seeing more of who Jesus is. So here's the lesson for us then as chapter 3 draws to a close. John wants us to rejoice when Jesus gets the girl and not us. Because we've learned that Jesus gives her what we never ever could. First then, verses 22 to 30, rejoice when only Jesus gets the bride. And the setting is important because it tunes us into the fact that we're at a watershed moment in the history of the world. Jesus has been in Jerusalem in the very opening act of his public ministry. 
And what we've seen so far is a great divide in people's response to the light and love that he came to shine. Some will come towards him. Most will shrink back from his exposing grace. And after this, verse 22, he leaves the city for the first time and slowly makes his way back to Galilee where the other gospels begin telling their story. Notice how John slips in verse 24 just to make clear that, yes, he knows his readers have all read the other gospels. He knows that they know that John was arrested and that's when Jesus' ministry traditionally kicks off. Don't get your knickers in a twist, he says. I'm not contradicting the standard timeline. I'm telling you about something that happened in the very opening act. And so what we've got here is a brief, unique moment in the history of salvation when the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus Christ overlap. The fading star and the rising sun, the last great prophet of the old covenant age and the long promised king that every Old Testament prophet was pointing towards. And both have a very similar message John's we've seen already, his signature thing was this baptism or washing that pictured our need for repentance, the need to be made clean before the coming king. And Jesus' message in the other gospels was the same, repent and believe, for the kingdom has come. And so Jesus, or we learn later on here, Jesus' disciples were also offering that picture of washing and repentance, of everything he's about to fulfill through his cross and the giving of his spirit. It's not quite the same thing that they're doing as our sacrament of baptism, just because they point in different directions. Our Christian baptism points back. It seals what Jesus has already done for us in history. This one was pointing forward. It was a call to repent and look for the cross. But as you'd imagine, the second you start getting water out in church, religious people start to squabble, don't we? What exactly does it mean? Who exactly is it for? How much water should we use? What's the best way to do it? And something like that's happening in verse 25. John's disciples are challenged by another Jew. They're all Jews, but this guy is a Jewish religious authority. They're challenged over the whole concept of purification. What does this washing you're doing involve? Who has the right to wash people clean? At some point, everyone was flocking to your guy, to John. Now they're all going to Jesus. And what about our temple? Isn't that where people are supposed to have their sin dealt with? And you can imagine how unsettling that was for John's disciples, can't you? They've invested heavily in John the Baptist their human leader. His whole ministry was about this. Now his whole ministry is being challenged. And meanwhile, a rival preacher is offering the same thing. But what if his washing does the job better? Well, we readers have had a spoiler, haven't we? In fact, we've had two spoilers. Spoiler number one came on day one of this gospel, when John the Baptist himself said, Everything I'm picturing here with this baptism, Jesus is going to do for real. He will pour his spirit out on us 
and wash us on the inside, just as I'm washing you here on the outside. So you've got to wonder, haven't you, why these disciples of John are still hanging around him. They haven't been listening very well to what he's been saying. Spoiler number two came a few days later with the first great sign of this book, the one that would set the agenda for the whole gospel. Jesus was at a wedding and he took gallons and gallons and gallons of water, didn't he? Water that was set apart for a special religious washing, the same word that's used here in verse 25. And he went and turned that into the very best wine anyone had ever drunk. In other words, he replaced all of the water that would picture God's forgiveness with wine that would be used to celebrate it at the great wedding feast of the Messiah. And so we readers, we know that yes, Jesus is the one who will fulfill all of this purification, everything that John's ministry promised. His washing is better. And yet when they see it, John's disciples don't much like it. It feels like a threat to everything they've built, everything they've invested in. And so they complain to John. They exaggerate. Everyone's going to him. It's a disaster. Literally, there's no one left at our altar calls. And notice how impersonal it is. They talk about Jesus as he who is with you, the guy you testified about. They're talking there about the one that John said would take away the sins of the world, the Lamb of God. But while they come across here as worried and resentful, John is anything but, isn't he? Friends, I couldn't receive one thing unless it was given to me from heaven. Not one follower, not one convert, not one job or position or ministry. Isn't that a great reminder to us here on Membership Sunday, the day six folk join us? Every single one found their way here to us simply because God is kind. It wasn't them and it wasn't us. Every single job we do for Jesus, we do because God is kind. We didn't earn it. It's not our great gifting that got us the job. Every one of us Christians is like a volunteer in a charity for people who would never get a job on the open market. Even the brightest and the most gifted in the room. And then look at what John the Witness says next. Isn't verse 28 some wonderful irony? You yourselves bear me witness. You are witnesses to the witness. You are witnesses to how I bore witness all along. To how I said all along that you should look at the lamb, not the servant. You heard me say that. How every chance I got, I said, I am not the Christ. The job God gave me was to be number two the forerunner. And I never imagined being anything more than that. So friends, what are you still doing here with me? One of the things I think we've lost in our day and age is a sense of vocation, of being called to a particular role and a particular time in a particular place and being happy with that. We're told today, aren't we, you can be 
whatever you want to be. You've got to find whatever job it is that really fulfills you right now. John says, no, no, that isn't true. No human being can be anything, verse 27, but what God calls him to be. It was uniquely true of John. He was called to a particular station at a particular time in redemptive history. But he knows that in verse 27 because it's true of all human beings. There are gifts and opportunities and ways to be significant in the kingdom that God has chosen to give us. And there are gifts and opportunities and ways to be significant that he just hasn't given to us. And we often think of those ones as reasons for bitterness and resentment. John saw that as a reason for great, joyful humility. I serve at the king's pleasure. Everything I have comes from him. There's something wonderfully comforting, isn't there, in knowing that what ENC has been given right now and what we haven't been given right now depends on the wise, loving providence of God. Listen to some words of pastoral counsel from John Calvin. We are exactly what God wanted us to be. Aren't those good words? The same goes for all of us individually, us as a church, us as individuals. You have been called to be where you are, to the jobs you have for Christ and the people you have to love and serve. And we should be able to have a real sense of peace about those callings. You are just what God wanted you to be, nothing more, nothing less. John was a great prophet, a significant prophet, for a fixed time in salvation history. And when the Savior comes, that job is redundant. He wasn't the Christ. So what we mustn't do is try to claim a status or a station that God hasn't given to us. I mustn't ever claim titles that Jesus hasn't given to his pastors. There are some I'm allowed. Shepherd, I'm allowed to call myself that. That is a good title. It's pretty ordinary, isn't it? Someone who feeds sheep, cares for someone else's sheep. I'm allowed that one. Why claim a title that does not belong to me? Why would any pastor claim the title of Pope or Apostle? Why try to use our jobs or our gifts in ways that grab the authority and the limelight and the attention and the status? Well, the reason that successful leaders often do that is that we want the bride for ourselves. We need the affirmation. We want her love, her approval, her wide eyes and weak knees at our brilliance. But the bride belongs to the bridegroom. Verse 29 is making a pretty punchy claim, by the way. The bride through the Old Testament was God's people, Israel. And the bridegroom was God himself. And so John is saying, look, right now, all around you, the bride is running into her lover's arms. So who does that make Jesus? John's great joy was to stand as usher 
as God arrives to claim his people at the fairy tale ending to the most dramatic story ever told, the one that has taken all of the Bible and all of human history to unfold. His job was to walk her down the aisle and hand her to Jesus. He never imagined being anything else but people leaving him and going to Christ. The historians tell us that being friend of the bridegroom was a formal role. It's a bit like best man today. He has a job to do, but first and foremost, he's a friend. And John is the kind of friend, verse 29, whose heart leaps with excitement when he hears Jesus' voice. Have you got a friend like that? You see them getting out of the car and it's such a joy. His joy is filled to the brim when he sees Jesus do well. It is hard, isn't it, to be overlooked? It's hard when we're not appreciated, but everything changes when the one in the limelight is a true friend. I wonder if that's how we think of Christ. Do our hearts leap when we hear him speak at the thought of meeting with him and his people? Or best of all, when we see someone else learn to love him? Augustine has a great little comment here. The one who wants to rejoice in himself will always be sad. But if you want to rejoice in God, you will rejoice forever. And so what joy it must have been for John after all that waiting to hear the voice of the bridegroom speaking at last, to see the one he loves, his own saviour, stand up front and get the girl. And now that job is done, verse 30, he must fade away and with him the whole Old Testament era because today is all about Jesus. Now, none of us stand in quite the same place in redemptive history as John the Baptist. This is a story about how the most honored prophet of the Bible is eclipsed by the Messiah who fulfills that Bible. But if even he could rejoice to be less, then how much more us to see Jesus made much of? Surely we can do the same. Rejoice when we get no attention and only Jesus gets the bride, when people credit him with everything and the rest of us are overlooked because that is how it must be. And then secondly, verses 31 to 36 tell us why it's a must. Why must it be only Jesus, verse 30? Well, the answer lies in who he is and what it means. Only Jesus gets the bride because he holds what only heaven can give her. So rejoice in what only Jesus can give. It's hard to know quite when John the Baptist's words stop and when John the author takes over, but it seems like he's using this paragraph, the author, to sum up everything that he's said in this first big chunk of the book. And he does it by coming back to a contrast that's been running since the conversation with Nicodemus about earthly things versus heavenly things. 
Jesus is not like any human pastor or prophet because in Jesus, the love of heaven itself is speaking. He comes from above, verse 31, and that places him above everything and everyone. John the Baptist, John the Apostle, John Calvin, John Stotts, John MacArthur, certainly Rupert Hunt Taylor of Little Edinburgh North Church. And the reason is that every one of us earthly teachers belongs to the earth. And that's not a bad thing. It's not the same word he uses for the world, which has very negative connotations in this book. We're just earthly. The point is that we're limited. We're finite. We can only speak in earthly ways, and we can only give people earthly things. Even the great giants of church history, like John the Baptist. And remember what the great tragic problem is in the human heart that's been running through this section, we are deeply broken inside, fundamentally hostile to truth. And so we will never see life, we've learned, any of us human beings, unless that life is born in us miraculously from above. We have to be born anothane, the same word that he uses in verse 31. We have to be born from the place that Jesus comes from, above. And so we need someone who can show us the above things, heavenly things, and give us what only heaven has to give. And so what are we hearing then when we hear the bridegroom's voice? We're hearing the one we're made for. The one who bears witness to things he has seen firsthand, to truths that have been whispered into his heart from all eternity. When Jesus speaks, verse 34, God himself is speaking to us. This is the one who's been loved uniquely, verse 35. Loved from before the dawn of time. And when he speaks, it's the God of love that we hear. So John is inviting us here into truths so mysterious and wonderful and eternal that we almost have to hold our breath. Augustine put it like this. There's an analogy here that our hearts will never be able to fully understand, nor our tongues express. Because it's not merely that the Son heard the Father's words and repeated them to us. The Son is the Father's word. God the Son is the message forming in God's heart in all eternity that he hasn't yet put into syllables and spoken into the world. What God the Father most wanted to say from all eternity to mankind, lost, sad, sinful, lonely mankind, what God the Father most wanted to say to us was God the Son, his word. And the point of that is just to make us say, wow, look at what we have in Jesus. When we hear the bridegroom's voice, look how unique he is, how unlike any human teacher even if from John the author's perspective, writing all these years later, it seems like no one wants to listen to him. 
But you see, God so completely pours himself out to us in Jesus that verse 33, when we accept or reject Jesus, we are passing a verdict on God himself. When the Son speaks, verse 34, God is speaking. In sending the Son, says Augustine, we mustn't think we were sent anything less than God the Father. He sent his other self to us. So when we rejoice in Jesus' voice, when we accept his testimony, we're saying God is true. What he has said to the world in God the Son is not a lie. He really is a God of love and holiness and saving grace. And when we treat Jesus, God the Son, just like any other prophet or teacher or wise man, we're listening to God the Father bear his soul and then calling him a liar. And the point, the big question, is that if all of that is true of Jesus Christ, why on earth are we so persistently willing to attach ourselves to mere people, leaders we admire, who can give us so much less than him? Why is it that when a pastor leaves a church and a new one arrives who believes all the same things but preaches in a way we don't like, so many of us drift off into discontentment over the next few years? Why do we all have our pet preachers online and our pet writers and wrap our identities up so much in them? It's because often it's the human voice that we've become attached to. All of us have to watch that, don't we? Sometimes it's not the bridegroom we're being drawn to, but the one who's meant to lead us to him. It's a bit like when you give a young child a a gift box with some beautiful, costly, precious treasure inside, and immediately they tip out the gift and go and play with the box. That's what it's like, isn't it? When we fall in love with a pastor, not the bridegroom. And very often, us human pastors and teachers and elders and small group leaders play into that tendency. It's very tempting to collect people for ourselves, to validate ourselves on the numbers coming to church or tuning into the podcast. It's pretty rare, actually, for any of us in church, in any job, to truly want to make ourselves replaceable, to sit happily in the calling we've been given and then hand it on, like John the Baptist, when people outgrow us rejoicing that Jesus gets the girl. It's the bridegroom their eyes are on, not us. And that's what makes us joyful. That's rare, isn't it? And so John wants us to see exactly what the difference is between Jesus Christ and every human leader he sits above. God would give his prophets a measure of his spirit to allow them to do the job that was assigned to them. He gives us, each one of us, a measure of his spirit, all that we need and all that we can receive to unite us to his son. But each one of us in his body has a role and a place. And so the Bible says we need each other 
because there are gifts that we all lack. None of us has it all. Whereas God gives the Spirit to his Son without measure. In fact, verse 35, a parallel verse, you see, he gives all things to the Son he loves without measure. Every gift of heaven is placed into Jesus' hands, and so they are his to give. The Spirit himself, the washing our hearts need, a new birth, the love of his Father, the roles and the gifts and the ministries and the people who we have. And verse 36, eternal life itself. Every gift of heaven is Jesus to give. I can't give you any of that, can I? There is not a single real problem that I can fix for you as your pastor, which is why I don't get the girl. And neither does John the Baptist or John the writer or John Calvin or John Stott or John MacArthur. The truth is all of them need the bridegroom too. All of us ultimately are just ushers and part of the bride. We can't receive one thing unless it comes to us from heaven. And so Jesus alone can give what we need. He is not like any human being. God pours his spirit into us like a cup up to the measure that we need. God pours his spirit into the eternal sun like an ocean with no bottom and no shore. He has never stopped from all eternity pouring the Spirit into his Son. God the Father and God the Son possess God the Spirit in his entirety. And Jesus can give to his church from that ocean without ever depleting. It's out of his fullness, John said, remember? Out of his fullness that we receive grace upon grace. And so there's nothing that limits what Jesus is able to give to you and me of his spirit. Sometimes we, we feel like that, don't we? We feel there are all sorts of things that we suspect put some limits on our spiritual lives. Maybe his willingness to be generous to me is the problem. Maybe it's my own human weakness, my sinfulness, the sheer ordering, ordinariness of the jobs that I do for him. Jesus has all things in his hands and he can give to his bride what no one else can. So don't fall for the usher on your way down the aisle. Jesus comes to us in his word straight from the Father's heart of love with all the gifts of heaven in his hand and first-hand knowledge. I come here most Sunday mornings straight from a row with the kids over the breakfast table with nothing but a sermon full of other people's ideas. Even the things I think are original, I've been given. And I'll tell you a secret, it's the same for all the Johns, Calvin, Stott, MacArthur. All of them are just people who speak in earthly ways and point you to Jesus. So look how the very last verse of the chapter drives it all home. On the one hand, verse 36 seems plain vanilla, doesn't it? The sort of thing John says all the time, like a broken record. But is this quite how you would have phrased it? 
if you were asked to give a one-sentence presentation of the gospel, it's a heads and tails sentence, isn't it? Here's the heads. Whoever believes in the Son has all this right now, eternal life, his gift. Well, we like that. But what about the tails? Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But right now, he remains under God's wrath. Why does John present obeying Jesus as the very same thing as trusting Jesus? We like to separate those things, don't we? It's not comfortable. But the whole point of this section has been that it's personal. The bridegroom is speaking to us. And the question is, what will we do with his words? Will we listen to him? Will our hearts thrill at his voice? God commands us to listen to his son and trust his son, his only way to eternal life. And so when we won't believe Jesus, we're disobeying him. When in fact, true joy comes from us listening to his voice, rejoicing in his joy, his glory. It is Jesus Christ who sets human hearts racing because he is the best kind of friend. The one who came from heaven to seek out his bride, you and me, and give her what nobody else ever could. Listen to his voice. Let it thrill your heart. Obey him. Be less and have far, far more. Well, let's bow our heads. Loving Heavenly Father, help us, we pray, to truly find our joy, our contentment in who the Lord Jesus is and the wonders he's done for us. And so help us gladly to be less that he might be more. Would all who we have the chance to show the beauty of the gospel to forget us, his servants, and see only him. We ask it, Lord, because we love him. And we ask you to hear us because you love him. For Jesus' sake. Amen.